Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Good data shows that depression is a very widespread disease. In the United States, it is estimated to affect about 6% of the population at any one time, and the estimated life prevalence rate in women has been suggested to be as high as 20%. What we do know is that it exists in many forms, and it takes its toll in many ways, many of which are far more subtle than the often worst-case scenario of suicide. One clinical aspect of depression is known as the treatment-resistant depression. Today, we will explore the notions and options of treating such a depression with Amado Suarez, who is a psychiatrist with the University of South Florida. Dr. Suarez, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Before we start, it's important to note that any treatment decision has to be the product of a decision between a patient and the doctor. So we will be talking about things that perhaps might be of interest to you but are not necessarily suggestions for a treatment. That has to become an issue between you and your doctor. Okay, that being said, Let's begin with a basic definition, sir. How does a psychiatrist define a treatment-resistant depression? What does that mean? Uh, Typically what we look at is individuals or patients that we treat that have had an effective uh, trial of a medication, which means that they've been at an effective dosage, or what we would consider a therapeutic dosage, for an appropriate period of time, and when the medication has been taken on a consistent and daily basis. If a patient does not respond or fails to respond, to at least two trials of two different antidepressants, then by definition, we tend to see that as a treatment-resistant depression. Now, this is a consensus statement. It has not been formalized per se, but I think a lot of experts and researchers that work and have studied depression feel that that type of scenario somewhat closely parallels what we consider treatment resistance. Is there a period of time, when you say an adequate trial, is there a, 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 a rule of thumb, a standard period of, of time? How long do we wait before we say it's not working? You will see different definitions and you will see different opinions on that. But typically, I would say that an appropriate period of time of an antidepressant should be about three months. So if someone is not showing significant benefits in three months, they probably need to go to a, another medication or try a, a different treatment mod- modality. That seems to be the suggestion? That seems to be the suggestion. Okay. It brings into play, however, the notion that a lot of people are unfamiliar with, and that's the difference between remission and response. I'd like you to explain the differences, please. Well, that's a very important point because that's exactly that gets to the heart of the matter. In essence, when we talk about response or when we talk about an effective therapeutic response to depression, we're really looking at remission. And the difference between those two concepts is that response is that a patient or an individual sees some improvement and gets relief from some of the medications and oftentimes is defined as 50% improvement from where they were at their worst or before the treatment started. When we as clinicians speak about remission, we are looking at the prospect that a patient should be back to their baseline. In other words, they should feel as well as they did before the depression even started. And we use different parameters and tools to measure this. Oftentimes, we use questionnaires for depression, and we have guidelines that we follow, certain scores that we track if a patient, in fact, has attained remission. And that's a very important concept because we no longer settle for just a response. We do not want to see just a patient feeling a little bit better. We really are aiming to have a patient fully functional and feeling at their best as they were before the depression started. If a response is starting to occur, 
then by suggestion here, people need to, unless there's a clinical reason contrary to it, people need to stay on the medication to allow the remission to really occur. It takes, takes longer than just a response. A lot of people become discouraged very quickly if the medication doesn't work, but I think people need to understand a little bit, sir, how common is a failure to a first trial of a medication or a second trial of a medication? How, tr- how common is treatment-resistant depression? Some of the studies indicate that up to a third of patients will fail first trial of an antidepressant, and that's a significant number. So if a patient then proceeds to a second trial, there's still a significant percentage of individuals that may fail a second trial of an antidepressant. Now, on the flip side of that, that means that approximately two-thirds of patients will respond to a first trial of an antidepressant. But a patient should not become discouraged if they do not respond to the first trial because, again, the statistics show that approximately 35% of individuals may not respond to that first treatment or that first medication. The main point is that the patient should work closely with their physician or their uh, clinician to address the fact that they have not responded and then consider alternative options. Is there a reason that's more common than other reasons why people don't respond to the initial treatments? Do we have a sense of who's going to respond and who's not going to respond when we begin treatment? There's multiple different reasons why an individual may not respond to treatment. Oftentimes, like I mentioned initially, the patient may not be in the correct dosage or maybe in a dosage just too low. They may not be on the medication for a sufficient period of time. Oftentimes, for example, if an individual experiences some side effects, they may stop the medicine after two weeks. We do not classify that as a failure because that's not an appropriate time for treatment. There's also other conditions that may complicate treatment. Some patients have other medical conditions that may make it more difficult for them to respond. There may be other, for example, metabolic conditions that may be contributing to the depression. For example, a thyroid condition. In addition, there's other patients that may have what we call comorbid conditions such as alcohol abuse or alcohol dependence. Some individuals may use drugs when they're taking their medications and all of those factors can impact and influence their response to the treatment. We know that a great number of patients, and and many of them properly treated, I must say, but many of them are treated by non-psychiatrists. When does someone start thinking that they need to see a psychiatrist versus their good family doctor? We have very competent and we have excellent primary care physicians that work collaboratively with us. Some primary care physicians are very astute and very well-trained in psychiatry. But for the most part, I think most primary care physicians would agree that if a patient has failed two different antidepressants, especially if there's two antidepressants from two different classes, pharmacological classes, most often or most clinicians would say that that would be an appropriate time to refer the patient to a psychiatrist. How far along or is it perhaps maybe a completely different type of depression when someone is suddenly referred for electroconvulsive therapy or transcranial magnetic treatment? Do we have a sense that this is the extreme end of a treatment resistant depression, or might it be just a different type of depression entirely? Uh, I actually think it could be both. I think in some individuals, we can see an extreme level or extreme case of treatment resistance, so that even with different antidepressants, and oftentimes psychiatrists will often not use only one antidepressant, but they may use a combination of antidepressants, or they may also use what we call augmentation strategies, which means adding a different medication from a different class altogether, to an antidepressant, to 
to elicit a more robust response and, and obviously work towards remission. But even in those circumstances, there's patients that will fail to respond to multiple different trials and combination trials. That would be a patient that may, in fact, need to be considered for uh, electroconvulsive therapy or magnetic treatment. In addition to that, there may be other forms of depression. And again, let's, let's keep in mind that depression is just a symptom. There's many different types of mood disorders that can present with depression. For example, a bipolar disorder. The most common presentation for a bipolar patient is depression. It's not mania. So that we may see a patient presenting for the first time with a clinical depression, but in fact, this is the first presentation for what is a bipolar condition. So if we find that a patient is not responding to multiple different trials of antidepressants, we also have to consider the possibility that it may not be a clinical or a major depression. It may be a different form of a mood disorder, such as bipolar disorder. Or a situational disorder that really verbal therapy, cognitive therapy may be appropriate. Correct. And I think we tend to overlook that sometimes. Exactly, exactly. And I would also say that we have to keep in mind that pharmacotherapy is just one modality that we should consider in the treatment of depression. In the treatment of mood disorders, I should really say, I should really correct myself, in the treatment of mood disorders, we cannot neglect the fact that psychotherapy can be and should be at times an integral component of our overall treatment plan. One of the questions that keeps coming up, and I say this in reference to the many television ads that are now out there about a medication, the brand name is Abilify, we see it on television all the time. People will ask me, why are we mixing an antipsychotic with an antidepressant? It seems heavy. Well, a medicine like Abilify, which is uh, one of the members of a family a broader family, typically referred to as atypical antipsychotics. Initially, these medicines were FDA-approved as antipsychotics for the treatment of schizophrenia. However, as time progressed and as more research was done and as more studies were completed on these particular agents, it was found that there are also very effective mood stabilizers. And in fact, the research shows that they can be very effective agents when used in combination with antidepressants to effectively treat and address the treatment-resistant patient, and also to treat the bipolar patient. So these medicines oftentimes have multiple FDA clinical indications from uh, schizophrenia to the treatment of bipolar mania, to the treatment of bipolar depression, and to the treatment of resistant depression that will now respond to just an antidepressant. Which brings up an interesting point, because many of the treatment-resistant depressions may in fact be the result of an improper diagnosis. That is correct. And in fact, a lot of times that's the main, main issue that we have to initially address is are we actually working with the correct diagnosis? So as psychiatrists, one of our first responsibilities is to reassess and reevaluate the patient. Oftentimes for myself, I like to obtain a complete history and then pay particular attention and in particular details to really elicit a full and complete mood history. And I would say to you and propose to you that this should possibly not only be from the patient, but perhaps from a family member, spouse, a significant other who has a history of knowing this individual for a period of time. So I think our first responsibility to our patients is to really ascertain and determine whether their diagnosis is a major depression versus a bipolar type depression, or mood disorder secondary to a medical condition, or whether it's a situational depression. And I think we don't pay attention to that often enough. I think we've become a little bit too much in love with medications to the point where we forget all the psychosocial issues. Correct. I, I would fully agree with that. But on the whole, and over the years, it seems that we have become 
rather effective, really, with a larger number of people having depressions in, in, in fixing or reducing or, can I use the word, curing their depression. I would tend to strongly agree with that. And I would say I would go back to your initial introduction in that we oftentimes also forget the significant impact of depression that is really, in a sense, in a global impact on the individual and the, on the individual's life and the life of those around him or her. So it really is a true rippling effect that we see with a major depression. And we often neglect to understand that in individuals that do not get treatment, which is a majority of individuals with mood disorders, even in this day, and even in those individuals that do get treatment but perhaps are not correctly diagnosed or are not receiving the appropriate type of treatment, whether that be pharmacological or psychological, then I think the impact and the consequences of untreated or ineffectively treated uh, mood disorders is very significant. And a lot of times anxiety can present, which in fact is a manifestation of depression, but they're treated with purely anti-anxiety medications and they miss the diagnosis. Correct, correct. And oftentimes also what I see in my practice is that individuals that may present, for example, with uh, substance misuse disorders may oftentimes be masking or the oftentimes the lay term is, is self-treating with whatever substance of their choice. And really what they're treating is either an anxiety condition or a mood condition. And again, let's not forget that the two oftentimes are seen together. It does not have to be either or. We oftentimes see a mood condition together with an anxiety condition. So the diagnostic process is, is very complex and requires a little bit of work on everybody's part. And sometimes the resistance may be because that we're not aiming in the right direction. That is very, that is very true. Interesting stuff. Now, one of the things also that I find very interesting, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because you've been practicing psychiatry for some time, is that often the presentation of depression is people have aches and pains. It's not necessarily that they feel bad as much as that they have all the somatic manifestations and it might be missed. That is very true. And oftentimes you see you, when we speak with our colleagues in primary care, you'll, you'll hear them speak of patients who have multiple body system complaints and who often may present multiple, multiple occasions to the primary care office with diffuse, nonspecific physical complaints. The patient is oftentimes subjected to multiple medical evaluations, multiple uh, radiological tests, and oftentimes all of these tests are truly unremarkable. I would further say that in addition to that point, which is, again, a very important point, is the fact that we have to keep in mind that depression presents different according to the culture, so that there could be cultural variations in how we see depression, depending on the, on the patient's ethnicity and even their social, social background can affect the presentation of depression. That's so very true. And when we look at the standard presentations, the way the drug companies present their medications, rarely, I don't think I've ever seen a paragraph or two associated with the cultural issues and differences amongst the patients that they've studied. I don't recall ever seeing that. Your point's very well taken. Interesting. I think another aspect of that, which is, again, addresses cultural issues involved in, in depression and the treatment of, is that we know that, for example, certain ethnic and cultural uh, groups are very sensitive to medications and may, in fact, require very different dosage or dosages than what are typically studied in the general population, if you will, or the, the populations that are used in clinical studies for these different types of medications. 
Case in point being oftentimes the fact that some Asian American groups and Asian groups require very, very small doses of psychotropics compared to other ethnic or other groups in the in the United States. Which again takes us back to the basic core thesis here that the resistance may not necessarily be in the patient, but in the style and manner and understanding of the treatment modality. That is very, very, very true. Uh, interesting. Very true. So there is a responsibility on the part of the doctors, and there's also a responsibility on the part of the patients to, if they're not getting better, to say, hey, doc, there's some other aspects of me that maybe we should explore. Exactly. Very interesting. So the bottom line, though, when people listen to this is that, and I think you've said it very eloquently, that we can, we can work with it. We can, we can fix it. We can make people's lives better if we have enough time and resources to do it. The notion of treatment-resistance depression hopefully someday will no longer be a necessary phrase. Correct. And I would say that we have the resources and we have the uh, capability of helping individuals and helping them to lead fulfilling lives. And what I would say is that it's very important to give the patients our message that have open channels of communication with their clinicians to be able to fully and honestly discuss their response to the treatment and to be committed to the treatment because oftentimes it does take some time to find the right medication or combination of medications and psychotherapy to truly help the patient achieve a level of remission. We have been speaking with Amado Suarez, who is a psychiatrist with the University of South Florida, and we've been talking about the notion of treatment-resistant depressions, why it exists and how it can be approached and hopefully reversed and hopefully eventually taken off our list as a diagnostic entity. Dr. Suarez, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Strauss. It's been a pleasure.